everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Before I get started today, I wanted to mention something that we set up for our members. Over on our new portal at strongtowns.us, we've created a little Ask Strong Towns box, something that we promised that we would do. It's a way for you to submit a question, poke an inquiry at us, give us something to think about, and we promise to get back to you either here on the podcast or on the blog. We're going to make all the answers public, but we wanted to have this special place where our members could go and elevate our conversation to the places that they want to see it go. So to take advantage of that, head over to strongtowns.us. Thanks for listening, everybody. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm really excited this week, and I'm going to kind of lay the groundwork here before I invite our guest into the conversation. I worked for many years as a consultant. I worked for an engineering company for almost six years, doing municipal kind of engineering work, roads and streets and sidewalks and sewer and water systems. I even did an airport project at one point. When I left the engineering company and went back to graduate school, I started my own planning consulting firm. We didn't call ourselves consultants, but you know, at the end of the day, you walk like a duck, you quack like a duck. We were consultants of a different breed trying to create kind of a different model. I like consultants. And I know a lot of people think consultants are parasites on the system in a sense. But when you're in the system, and for me, especially as someone who wants to reform the way cities do business, I know that we need a breed of consultants out there that's not only embracing the strong town's message, but trying to do things in a fundamentally different way. And I have been searching for the last number of years for a group of people who were thinking like this, people who saw not only the need from like a deeply moral and conscious level to do things differently, but also were bright enough to see that market niche, that niche that was there for anyone willing to step up and say, look, we're not going to be the engineering firm that gets the big contract to build the Strode. We're going to be the engineering firm that comes in and tries to build enduring value and prosperity for your community. I think I found that firm, or at least I was enthused when I ran across this group called Verdunity. And today I'm really excited to have the president of Verdunity on the line, Kristen Green. Kristen, I want to just welcome you to the podcast. Thanks for agreeing to chat with me today. Yes, thanks for having me. You guys are located in Dallas, is that correct? Correct. Now, I want to start this off by saying you actually reached out to us became a a member of Strong Towns, then invited us to come to Texas. We spoke in Arlington and Garland and Dallas to share this message with some communities that you were working with. Why in the world did you do that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, why would we do that? Why would you do that? Um, Virginity was founded in April 2011 by three principals, myself, Bill Campbell, and Kevin Shepard, We were all working for large engineering firms at the time, but we were all working for the municipal client base. Going to leave it there for them 
Yeah. And then I'm going to start to talk about myself because we each have a little bit of a different story on exactly why we did this and, and such. So I'll just say where I came from. Please. I was doing municipal infrastructure projects at a larger engineering firm. I loved what I, I was doing. More so, I fell in love with the municipal client. I felt like that was where I could make the biggest impact on my own daily life and for the people around me was to work for municipalities where I could see the things that I was doing and see the progress and the fruits of my labor. For clarification, you're a PE as well, right? You're a licensed uh, engineer. Yes. And, yeah. All three of us are licensed engineers. Yeah. I guess back in 2007 is when TechSpot decided we have no more money. So the trickle-down effect of that was eventually the city kind of fell onto some financial hard times and things got really, really slow. For me, my first reaction, I'm embarrassed to say, was, oh, well, we're just in a slow part of the economy. It'll come back and things will just go back to the way they were and we'll just keep on chugging. Right. And um, the longer <laughs> that slow period went on, I started to realize I'm not sure that that's ever going to happen. And then I started to dig into some of these things and started to realize that even in the good times, our local communities were only able to fund a fraction of what their infrastructure needs were. And then I just I started to realize, you know, there's I, I love this type of client and they have a very complex set of issues and needs that me going to them with my handout saying, give me a project to design is not fixing. Right. Let me ask you a question. Just pause right okay. there for a sec. Cause I, I, it's interesting because I talk to a lot of engineers who say the same thing that you just said, we can do math, right? We can step back mm-hmm. and see like how these projects line up. And they say, Chuck, you know, we realize there is not money to do any of this stuff. How pervasive a mindset do you think that is? I think it's pretty widespread within our industry. I spent a lot of time trying to process this and figure out, you know, the reasons why we are continuing to just do the things that we're doing. And it's, I was in a large organization that had a lot of expenses, a lot of overhead costs, and there's really no choice other than to just keep saying, we just got to keep pushing the same ball along the same track and moving forward that way. Ultimately, I just, I realized that I was being part of the problem and I didn't want to be the problem. I wanted to be part of the solution. I think that's what inspired me most, or that's what made me feel real connected to you when we were, when we met and started chatting about this, because I was in very much the same place where, you know, I'm looking around going, we're making a living here, but that living is threatened by the way we go about this. And the fact that, you know, there's going to be essentially in the game of musical chairs, at some point, there's not going to be a chair. So not only from my own sanity of wanting to do something helpful and productive for society, but just realizing that the clock was ticking on this, I felt like I had to do something radically different than what I was doing. That takes some guts. And I I really admire you for that. So let me, sorry, just go ahead and keep going. You 
got to the point where you felt you had to do something differently. Yes, I knew I needed to do something differently. I honestly did not know what that was. I didn't know what it looked like, but I knew that there was absolutely no way that I was going to be able to figure out what that was from the place that I was at. So I did something that was, I look back now and I can't believe that (laughs) I had enough guts to do it, but you know, with, with Bill and Kevin and I all being kind of in the same place. And we, we just said, you know what, we, we think we can figure this out. So yeah, that was three years ago. And we said, you know, we're going to, we're going to do things differently. And we, the very first thing that we did differently was our name, which most engineering firms in Texas, and I'm sure this is probably everywhere are named after the owners of the company and we didn't want to do that. We wanted to do something that was different. So we, we came up with the word Verdunity, which is actually two parts. One is Verde for green that has many different meanings, but our, our biggest meaning behind the word green was that we want to build sustainable, economically, environmentally sustainable communities. And then the unity part is from the word community. And we went back and forth on whether or not we wanted that to be municipality or community. And we ultimately ended up with community because we want this. This is about the community as a whole. It's about the city. It's about the citizens. It's about the business owners. It's We're all in this together. And so that's where Virginity came from. And then from there, we knew we wanted to find a way to make a business case for green infrastructure. That was one little piece of, of what we wanted to do. But we also wanted to help cities figure out the issue of how do we take what little we have and use that in the most efficient way and the smartest way to move our city's initiatives forward. That was what our initial charge was. And I think one of the first things that we realized was that we were doing something different and we were up against the old way of thinking. And so where we were, we were wanting to be the implementation arm of cities to help them to do the right projects the right way. And then we quickly realized that our clients aren't there yet. Right. Uh, there's a gap between what we think is doing the right things the right way and what they think is doing the right things the right way. Right. We were forced to kind of take a step back and evaluate, one, are we on the right track? And, you know, are we doing the right thing? And if so, how are we going to convince our clients that they need to do something different? I always had this problem. When I was running the planning firm that I started, in the early 2000s. I would run into this all the time where you would get the RFP and it was very detailed exactly what they wanted. And what they wanted was really stupid, like really dumb, almost like borderline destructive. We want you to come in and create for us a Euclidean zoning ordinance that separates, you know, duplexes from single family homes and connects everything by hierarchical road network and, you know, come in and do this. And here's how we want it done. And they'd spell everything out down to the detail. I was torn because 
especially in those early days, you know, when I'm trying to feed my family and it's just me. And I, I again, you know, like you took this huge leap of faith where I had a, a well-paying job doing things in a stable company where I had a lot of a chance for advancement and promotion. Now all of a sudden I'm on my own and I have to kind of, I won't say choose, but I'm forced to kind of ponder the notion that do I follow my core convictions and values or do I feed my family? That was really, really tough because like you say, the people I was working for were not there. They were asking for something completely different than what where I was and what I thought would be best for them professionally. How do you deal with that when you get to that situation? That is a great summation of the struggle that what we have experienced for the last three years. I'm going to use your your incremental analogy. I mean, we we yeah. we have to do one thing, one small step at a time. We aren't going to completely turn everything around overnight, but we're going to keep pushing, and it's going to keep turning a little by little by little. And now here we are three years in and we're starting to make some significant progress on that. And we have a lot more clients that are seeing the value of what we're talking about. We're really starting to see some significant progress, which is really, really exciting. But to back up for a minute, because I still haven't asked, answered your, yeah, your yeah. first question. Go ahead. We feel that we want to get everyone on the right track, doing the right projects the right way. So now it's how do we convince our clients that they need to do something different? And that's when we realized that, you know, we're too focused on implementing. We want to skip to the end and start implementing some things. And and what we really need to do is we have to do some serious public outreach and education. And that is what brought us to Strong Towns because we started, I guess, back in 2011, we started reading your blogs and seeing what you had to say. And we thought, well, you know, here is someone else who, who is articulating quite well what we're trying to say, which are the reasons why we need to do something differently and why we can't just keep going down the same path that we're going. That's what brought us to, to you and why we asked you to, to come and help us with that public education component. That's actually really helped us build quite a bit of momentum. And, you know, I really loved the curbside chat that you did when you were here because you take something that is a very complex issue and you boil it down to something that anyone can understand. And you also give some examples because, uh, you know, I'm an engineer, so I love numbers. Right. You give some examples that prove that what you're saying has some validity to it. And I, I think for the people that we were able to get to those curbside chats, I think that they left with the same with the same conviction that we have felt for the last three years that we have to do something differently. There is there is not a choice. It's not going to be there ten years from now. What are we going to do? So that's where we are now. Yeah. And uh, that has helped us get to the point where we're able to have that implementation discussion where we can start to help our clients figure out, okay, here's how we do now some they of this. know that yeah. they're in trouble. Yeah. So now now what? We want to answer that now what question. Yeah. And help them figure out where are some things that 
some investments that you can make in your community that will start to build productive places that you can then take that and help it to feed back into the city and and try to slowly and incrementally dig yourself out of this. Now, Texas creates some fascinating dichotomies or, uh, you know, opportunities for this conversation. When I was down there, there were a lot of people who, before I left, said, Texas, like, you know, is anyone in Texas going to listen to this message? And I have to say, it was not only well-received and embraced, but I think, to me, it was a breath of fresh air for a lot of people. There's a really strong dialogue going on in Texas today about how to build real productive places. Would, would you say that's true? Yes, I would say that's true. I feel like you guys are pioneers in many ways in terms of the business model that you're creating and what you're trying to do for communities. But I also feel like maybe a decade ago, you would be out of business by now. But today, <laughs> there's actually room for this conversation because things are changing. Is is that the experience you guys are having? You know, it's it's still a little bit of an uphill battle, but I, I do think that people are starting to realize that there is a problem, especially in North Texas. We've been kind of in a bubble with the economy being what it has been. We have never really seen it quite as bad as many other parts of the country have. You know, it's been a little bit slower for, for us to have those conversations because everything's been just fine. We have done a tremendous job of creating an illusion of wealth that we have, you know, money's not an issue, water's not an issue, and we are at the point now where people are starting to acknowledge that those things are a huge issue. We've had several cities come out in the last couple of months saying, admitting to the public that they don't have enough money to rebuild all the infrastructure that they have that needs to be replaced. And I think that is a huge step in the right direction. Yeah. Just to let the people know that, you know, if we don't start to do some things differently, when the street in front of your house is broken down, we don't have the money to come fix it. There's that, and then there's also we have a a huge issue with water. I would I would venture to say water is our biggest issue. Yeah, that's the pinch point. Um, yes, many of our lakes that are our drinking water supply are lower than I have ever seen them. One city has just in the last week announced that they have 400 day supply of water left, and then beyond that, they have no water. Yeah, there's really no backup plan. And and that's a really scary thing to really think about. And and what is going to happen when, when that happens? Some of these things that are happening right now are forcing Texans to start to think about things differently. Yeah. So, which is a good thing for us. Right, right. You grew up in Texas, right? Yes. I think one of the interesting things that you told me was your service on the planning commission there in the city that you live in. How did you get involved in that? And why is that an important part of your life? In addition to, I mean, you you have a child, you have a husband, you have a family, you have this business that you're running, yet you find time to serve on the planning commission. Why? Like I said, I have a passion for local communities. So I want to be involved 
within my local community. I, I want to help make some of the decisions that are shaping the the form of the city that I live in and the streets that I drive on. I feel like it's my, I guess I don't want to say duty, no, but it's, it's very important for me to be involved with what's going on in my local community and understanding what the local issues are. This is one of the things that fascinates me too, is you put an engineer in a planning commission and force them to essentially take this more holistic view, which you obviously don't have trouble doing. But to me, there's got to be a certain level of frustration at times that you experience with that whole process. Is there not? I have been frustrated with with it on one instance where the majority of other people wanted to rezone something that was a much more financially productive land use to a very unproductive land use. And as an engineer, I came to the meeting with my calculations on how many potential jobs we would be losing, how many revenue, the tax revenue we would be leaving on the table and how much a liability we would be taking on and how the revenue from this very unproductive land use would only generate maybe a tenth of what the infrastructure would cost. You know, if the engineer would number, I had numbers to back up what I was saying and I was very proud of myself and um, no one listened to me. So I got outvoted five to one on that. But, you know, I mean, at least I am in a place where I can make those arguments. So I did, I did what I could do. I feel as frustrated as I am that no one else saw it the way that I did, I feel like I did what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. Part of the, I think, amazing thing about Texas is the culture. As a Minnesotan coming down there, there's a lot of things that maybe I see from the outside that internally are maybe not up for debate or not up for discussion. One of the comments I made that I think resonated with a number of people was that when you're in Texas and you look over at California, you see this very dysfunctional place, this place that's now this blue state that is doing all the wrong things and just trending in all the wrong directions. And and even your governor has remarked about how Texas is open for business and growing and, and everything is you know much better for people in Texas. The comment that I made is, you know, from a structural standpoint and from a budget standpoint, people forget often that California was what we would today call a red state. I mean, Ronald Reagan was the governor of California, pretty conservative guy. And in a lot of ways, Texas circa 2014 feels a lot like California circa 1980. A lot of the growth and development in Texas didn't really get started until air conditioning became ubiquitous. You know, in a lot of ways, you're just a generation behind where California was. There are a lot of people when we met and talked with, when I would mention that, would nod their heads and say, yeah, you know, this isn't going in, in the right direction. I'll ask this in a sensitive way, not in a condescending way by any means. I love Texas. But how much of the culture of Texas kind of gets in the way of this broader dialogue, or at least makes this broader dialogue a little bit more difficult to have? 
are you talking about in regards to the comparison to California? Well, just in general, you know, I mean, you have a state where we have snow here. People have four-wheel drives for a reason. <laughs> you know, yeah. we have big trucks for a reason here. I'm down there, you know, locked in 12 lanes of congestion on these high five overpass ramps you guys have built. And I'm looking around in a sea of, you know, huge pickup trucks and four-wheel drive SUVs going, and you have these, why now? It's a, <laughs> it's a very unique place for a lot of reasons. And it, it seems to me like you know, some of the built-in assumptions about automobile mobility, about, you know, the kind of embrace of the current pattern of, of zoning and development and the fact that, you know, we just build this and we'll get another Chick-fil-A and another strip mall. It seems embedded in the culture more than even other places. Maybe that's an unfair characterization. You can take issue with it. I guess I'm wondering if you think that's true and if you think that impacts the challenge that you face at Verdunity in, in doing what you're doing. That's an interesting question. And, you know, like you mentioned before, I am from Texas. So some of these things have been ingrained in me and I didn't quite realize that they're not the same everywhere else. But we do have a saying here in Texas that everything's bigger and better in Texas. Right. And that that is part of our culture. Everybody has the right to have their massive vehicles and three-car garages and acres and acres of property if they want it. And that is the culture that we have here. It does make things a little bit difficult for us when we start talking about sustainable development and looking at you know, laying these patterns and creating more productive places. The A lot of the things that the Texas culture values are not, do not fit within any of those things. And there is a lot of the pushback many times is, well, you know, we, we have a right to our cars. We have a right to our single family residential homes and you know, I, we're not trying to say that there's anything wrong with that either. I, right. I personally live in a single family residential home. I think what we're, what we're trying to convince people is that there, we, we can't have communities that serve one purpose. They need to have different types of land uses and a combination of different things that makes the numbers all work in the end. I was reading through a, a debate online about an infrastructure project right now, and not one person mentioned anything about the dollars involved with it. They were right. going back and forth about how, you know, it's our, it's our right to have this highway. We, we chose to live in suburban because we don't want to live in urban areas because the schools are bad and, and so on and so on. And no one mentioned the dollars. No one failed to mention that no one has any money to continue to maintain this failing infrastructure. Right. That's just not something that we have given much thought to. It's just that the sprawl is what we know. I mean, you've seen, you've seen Dallas. We have right. a tremendous amount of sprawl. And so the, the task for us is quite daunting. How do we make a transition from what we've done to a less vehicle-dependent society? Yeah. And it's 
it's it's very difficult and and it's it's a lot of people don't want it i sense that at least from the times that i've been there and i, I have an aunt that i'm really close to in dallas in actually Mansfield, which, you know, from, mm-hmm. from Minnesota, we call that Dallas. I know you guys would differentiate, but, um, from that area and we visit her annually. So I've been down there a number of times. It is interesting to me how the environmental conversation is maybe a really difficult one to have or, or a more difficult yeah. one to have. But as soon as you can start to move it into the dollars and cents category, you might not get the reflexive people, the people who, you know, believe that spending a billion dollars on an interchange is just a good use of funds because, you know, we've got congestion. When you can start to shift it to the economics and start to get, you know, that conversation, you do pick up the broad majority of people who tend to say, yeah, you know, this isn't making financial sense. Is that kind of the ground that you think this conversation is going to be most fruitful on? Absolutely. From day one, we have realized that the the dollars are ultimately what is going to drive every decision that gets made. And so our goal is to essentially provide documented proof that doing things differently will put us better off financially you get people's attention really fast when you start talking about the financial benefits of doing things differently. That is a piece of what we have put into an approach that we have come up with on that we use on all of our projects, which I feel is very unique to virginity. And if you will, I would love to just kind of walk yeah, through the steps yeah. of, of what that approach is. I would love that. And I would say, you know, just for me, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I've been searching for you guys. I didn't know it was you, but I, you know, I've been searching for the firm out there that was going to say, this is a market differentiator and we're going to own this space because not only do I think it's a smart place to be from a business standpoint, but this is how we're going to get this country back. I mean, this is how we're going to turn things around. So I'm just really inspired by it. So go ahead. Talk about how you approach these projects. Our project approach is the seven-step process. First thing we do is we want cities to kind of stop and assess what they have in regards to existing infrastructure and essentially build kind of a community-specific report card that says, you know, this is what we have, this is the condition it's in, this is how old it is, and, you know, add up all of those dollars and say, what is our financial liability on all of these things and when they're going to need to be replaced. Then from there, once we have that established, then it's about looking at what are your potential high productivity areas within your city. And, you know, this is Texas. We, our cities are very spread apart. So (laughs) this is not about doing, making the entire city one big urban development. It is about finding little pockets in the city that we could invest in that, you know, could make some financial return for the city. Right. The third step would be to start looking at the water and natural areas to take a look at the map out the what are your watersheds within your cities, where are your creeks and any other natural areas or or public spaces that you have 
and start to identify what are some of the green infrastructure or bike or pedestrian connections that we can incorporate that would, you know, could add some value to these areas. The next step, we've kind of uh, adopted a, a term from you that we create a citywide strode map. That oh, yeah. is wow. intended, <laughs> it is intended to <laughs> identify where are the areas that you have that are really overbuilt or maybe not reaching their, their maximum potential either for carrying cars or providing a place for people to feel comfortable. And then from there, we overlay the two on top of each other. And then that's how we really start to identify where are those areas that we could start to make some progress on. Yeah. And then we within once we identify those areas, we come up with some small projects that we can actually go out and test, you know, go out and put some cones up or yeah, know, yeah. do do something that you can demonstrate value there. Because honestly a lot of these things if they haven't been done before, taking away a lane of traffic is, is a very controversial issue totally. here in Texas where we feel like we need we need the ability to get more and more cars through. So we do need to be able to demonstrate some of these things. And then from there, once we're able to do that, then we want to continue to find small little incremental investments that can be made in those areas to start to build them slowly over time into areas that can be financially productive places for the cities. That is an approach that we have put together that is kind of our ideal scenario. Right. I wish I could tell you that every one of our clients wants us to go through this process with <laughs> them. And unfortunately that is not the case. Right. Yet. So right. we are still we are working towards that and we are starting to get several clients that are we're having these discussions with or we're doing various pieces of this with them and walking through that process. I mean, honestly, we've had the downtown Arlington guys and, and the city of Garland after they went to your curbside chat, you know, they came to us and they said, okay, we're totally on board. We know we need to do something different, but now what? Help right. us. And so we're starting to have those conversations with them and trying to help them figure out what can we do in our city to start to move the ball forward. And we are very, very excited about the potential that is there. That's so invigorating. I'm so grateful that you, you shared that because, you know, a lot of times I will go out and have these conversations in places around the country and, and you walk away and there are people there who get it, but you know, what's coming out of that? And I said to you when I was in Texas and I'll say it again, I think that this country needs not just you to be very successful, but we need people to copy you and your model in cities around this country and be doing this because it is that incremental approach that's going to restore our wealth and restore our communities to, to success and prosperity. Let me ask you this. I'm not asking you to reveal any proprietary things or, or anything that would be overly personal, but this has had to be a little bit of a struggle from a business standpoint too to be, in a sense, pioneers and pioneering a new business model. How have you been able to deal with some of those things, and, and how difficult has it been? It's been extremely difficult. Yeah. We have a, we are very passionate about what we believe is the right way to do things. 
that, you know, we are also a, we are an S-Corp. We are a for-profit business that has employees that actually do want to take a, a paycheck home. <laughs> so it has been a struggle for us to figure out how do we stick to our values and not compromise that, but then also be able to to bring in enough work to be able to pay all the bills and keep everybody happy. Right. That's something that we continue to struggle with. I really wish I could tell you that everything we have done as an organization is only along the lines of what we think is doing the right thing the right way. There have been things that we have had to do, some rehabilitation projects that we have had to do that, you know, just simply to pay the bills. And we can make a case that some of those things are are infrastructure projects that have to be replaced. Um, They serve a a purpose in their communities and, but we're not completely there yet. I'm glad you said that. And I'm glad you've been willing to share that because, you know, I can go back to my days when I was running my own planning firm and I can look at some of the plans that I wrote and ordinances I put together and just say, what, for me, I'm putting words in my mouth, not in yours. You know, what crap (laughs) I did, but I would always find a way to advance the ball at least a little bit. You know, I can look in some of those plans and say, you know, here's 20 pages here and, you know, 16 of them are indistinguishable from what any other planning company would have done. But those four pages in there that are just brilliant, that really advance the ball in a way that I'm proud of and started a dialogue. And so I, I'm, I wouldn't beat yourself up ever about the transition you're going through. Cause I, I do feel like you guys are pioneers and we need to find a way to make your business model a success and viable. And, and that's going to take some time because the market's not there yet. We're not, but I will say this. One thing that I am very proud of is that no matter what we are doing, we have always been willing to have that conversation with our clients. We are always pushing the envelope and trying to get them to look at things maybe a little bit differently. So we are always willing to start that conversation. And in every case, we always have. Does it always end in the way that we want it to? No. But, you know, we are also not, we are not sitting back and waiting for the market to turn and then for us to be able to follow that trend. We are we have spent quite a bit of our own resources getting out and and speaking at various conferences or just uh, presentations to councils or P&Z boards about what are our issues as a region that we have to face. And I, I feel like we have made a tremendous impact on getting that word out so I, I am very proud that we aren't just sitting back and just taking things that we know aren't the right things to do and just waiting for someone else to to build the, the business case for it. We are we are out there in our local communities actively trying to get the word out and to turn the ship. I've got you on the line here and I'd like to before we wrap up ask you a couple of related questions. You are the second 
female engineer that I've run into in the last month who is in a powerful, successful position. And it's really invigorating in a sense to see you have the success that you've had. I want to just ask you about women in the engineering profession. And if you found any particular obstacles being an engineer, or if you think the world has changed and, you know, paths are wide open for women who want to go into engineering and be successful at it. Yes and no. I have had early on in my career, I guess starting back in college, sure, I ran into a couple of guys that didn't want to be my lab partner because I was a girl and they didn't think I knew what I was doing. And, you know, I've run into a construction inspector here and there that won't acknowledge me because I'm a woman. But, you know, for the most part, I do feel like women are treated equally within this business. And I know that that is not, that has not been the case always. And I have to give the credit to that, to the generations of women that came before me in this business that really put up with a lot. But I, I respect them so much because instead of quitting, they just put their heads down. They worked really hard and they earned the respect of their male counterparts and I, I feel like today, most of the negative connotation that, that goes along with being a woman in engineering is has pretty much disappeared. I, I don't want to say that yeah. in, a, in a broad way because I know that every woman's experience is different. And that's just been my experience. Yeah. So I have two daughters and I just would love for them to be able to follow their passions. And it's great for me to see, you know, people like you having such success and being so well respected within your profession, just as role models for them. So thank you so much. I want to ask you one more question and we maybe should do another show about this at some point because I really value your opinion, but the engineering profession itself many of us, and you kind of alluded to this earlier too, inside the profession know that things need to change and change dramatically in terms of our approach to innovation, our reliance on standards, our kind of, you know, locked into doing things that I think we collectively all understand are not in the best interests of society. How do we start this dialogue of reform? And and do you think it has to come from within or do you think that there's going to be pressures from outside that are going to come to bear. I know that's a huge question, but <laughs> you know, yes, that I, is a very, that is a very huge yeah, issue. Yeah. And, you know, I honestly wish that I had the answer to that because if I did, I would have already convinced everybody to, to come on my side. Sure. You know, I think it's just going to, I honestly, I think it's going to come from the outside. It's going to come from, the market needing to change. And I think it's a lot of the, I think there's a lot of engineers out there that get it and that see it, but they work for large organizations where they're they're told from above that they need to just keep doing the same things the same way. I think that's a big part of it too. So I think when the clients start to see the value in doing things differently and the tide starts to turn, I, I think that we'll see a, a big shift in that, but that's just my, my thought. If people want to find out more about your work, if 
other firms want to partner with you, which I know you guys do, and I think is a very logical thing for a company trying to uh, you know leverage some of the good stuff that you guys are going on. How do we get a hold of you? We have a newly redone website, which we are very, very proud of. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's Thank very nice. You. Yeah. <laughs> I believe all of our contact information is on our website. All right. And that address? It is www.virginity.com. Why don't you spell that out for us, too? <laughs> okay. That's V E R. B-U-N-I-T-Y. And we'll put a link to that on the podcast site too. If you're listening and would like to get a hold of Kristen or Kevin or Bill, you have an amazing team. I mean, these guys are really not only very bright, but a lot of fun to be with too. I had a blast in the time that we were in Texas. How'd you come across these guys? Kevin was actually my boss. Um, at my (laughs) former firm. And then Bill was a, he was a subconsultant that we used on a lot of our projects. So we had a great culture. We were, it was work hard, play hard. And we had a, me and Kevin have worked together for about 10 years now and worked with Bill for majority of that as well. So I agree. We've, We've got a good group. We know how to, work hard and we have a lot of fun together as well. So yeah, it was a great time. Witty people. We really enjoyed our time with you while you were here too. It was fun. I I heard a rumor that we may be coming back in October, which would be awesome. Let's keep in touch and try to make those things happen. We would love for that to happen. All right. Kristen Green, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for what you're doing. You're an inspiration to me and to others. So I really am happy to have chatted with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening today. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.
Do you worry, though, by saying that the markets are rigged and by laying out the story that you have, that the individual investor does not trust Wall Street well, anymore? I mean, they don't you, trust Wall are you, Street are you really? Is. I'm sorry. Are you really under the illusion that the individual investor trusts Wall Street now? That's what I just said. I, what I just said was they don't trust Wall Street as it is. Does a book like the one that you have laid out keep them away from Wall Street forever? From, I think it would you be, recommend I, that even, they play did on I Wall Street? Did I turn their mistrust into even deeper mistrust? Yes. I, God, you know, I, you, who am I to say?